Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sour and Sass. Uh, very excited today to be joined by Drew Beechler. Uh, welcome to the show, Drew. Thanks so much for having me, Garrett. This is going to be a blast. Yeah, man. Director of Marketing at High Alpha. How's that going over there? It's incredible. I've been here at High Alpha almost six years, pretty much since the beginning. So I've had a chance to, to see a lot of different companies and get to work with a, a ton of founders over the years, and it's been uh, an absolute blast. I love that. What, what do you think? So you got to see a lot of different founders. What do you think when it comes to marketing? Like, what percent of founders these days are getting better and better at marketing compared to the past? Where I think you know, being a technical founder was kind of the expectation. Um, are more and more founders marketing centric, or kind of what's that makeup looking like in your mind these days? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, we at High, High Alpha, our business is unique in that not only are we a venture capital firm where we invest in B two B software businesses, but also incubate and kind of start companies. Uh, out of the studio itself. And so over the past, you know, years, we've started something like 30 companies. And so, you know, the, the kind of founder profile really spans a pretty wide spectrum of, of those companies that I, that I get to work with from, you know, highly technical founders, uh, sometimes founders that are a bit more um, just deep in subject matter expertise, you know, if we're kind of targeting uh, something in the ed tech space, you know, in, in our, in one of our CEOs was a former president of a university. And, um, and so I think it's, uh, we're definitely seeing when I think about some of the last six, seven, eight companies we started, there's definitely more of a lean toward marketing leaders turning into CEOs for sure. Um, and at least kind of just having a, a good understanding of like the importance of marketing in the business. But I think for any founder, you always got to kind of think about what, what are my strengths in general? And then how do I round out the team around me with kind of building up some of that expertise? And I think that marketing coming to the table, whether it's in the, the founder's background or finding a co-founder on the marketing side or an early hire on the marketing side, I'm definitely seeing more and more companies lean into that earlier on than, um, than I'd say we've seen in the past, whether it is the founder themselves or, you know, within the first two, three, four hires, they're, they're adding that expertise into the team really early on. And I think it's, it, I think so far we're seeing it pay out um, big dividends and, and really helping the company kind of grow bigger, faster and, and build kind of a, a more meaningful brand kind of in the early days. It really, really helps them out. No. And I, I mean, there's also like the brand on Twitter and then there's the brand in your customer's eyes, which I always find is very ironic about the VC and like marketing founder world, right? Like you have these really like popular founders, but they have no market share. Like think Basecamp, like no one actually cares about their product, but they're somehow relevant on Twitter. Um, so not that anyone ever actually says that, but it's kind of true, right? So when you think about this go-to-market reality in the, your organizations, what does the capital allocation mix look like in your mind? Like what percent of the most successful SaaS companies, like the most successful SaaS companies coming out of high alpha, what percent of uh, revenue are they spending on sales and marketing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, you know, the answer, it depends is never a good answer, but you know, it, it really does depends. It does, it does depend around what industry they're in, uh, how established the market is as well. You know, are yeah. we, are we selling something that like already exists and we're just trying to kind of capture market share? Are we trying to convince the market that this should exist? And it's a lot of educational side of things. Um, you know, I, th I think a lot of that kind of depends, but I think, you know, in the early days, uh, you know, you should think about like, 
probably whatever you're spending, it's too little, I would say, you know, like, uh, and think about someone one once recently kind of was talking about a like three X, uh, kind of CAC, uh, and what you should be willing to kind of spend and kind of thinking about like your LTV, uh, of a company. And, um, in the early days, you're probably spending way too little on, um, those companies on, on the, on the acquisition cost. Mainly it's just because the value of getting in those customers early on is just incredible because you need the best learning. Uh, we always say the best learning always happens with customers. And so you need customers yeah. in the business in order to be able to learn or even making a product people want and how do we make the right product and the best product. And so uh, it can't be overstated that importance of just getting early customers in the door. And I think for the most part, a lot of companies are probably underinvesting in that area, to be honest. We also tend to be a pretty a firm that's uh, a pretty sales and marketing heavy heavy organization as a whole. Anyway, um, yeah. you have a lot of marketing and sales and go to market full time headcount on the high alpha team. That is definitely where like our expertise uh, lies. So yeah. take that with a grain of salt, I guess, as well. Yeah, no, and I, I get that. I think you know I hear numbers like thirty percent, forty percent of budget. Would you say that's a high number, thirty percent or forty percent? I think that's probably accurate. No, I think that's I think that's probably accurate. Um, yeah. I think the thing about like headcount wise too, like around ten to fifteen, ten to twenty percent of like your headcount being in marketing, um, even as well. So by the time you know, and usually within the first five employees is where I try to kind of uh, encourage companies to make that full time hire, and then kind of keep that ten to fifteen percent of like your organization in the marketing org um, through. Series A, Series B, kind of if, if you're going the venture backed route. Yeah. So explain this to me. VC, invest in companies, oftentimes pre-revenue with no initial goal of EBITDA, which I'm totally okay with. Um, like I'm not one of those like, you know, we need profit. I, I think the people who think they need profit are, are sometimes funny because the in the pursuit of profit, you can rarely have a vision for more profit because it's based on cutting costs, not value creation, right? But we, we go to marketing, right? So let's put this in the marketing. So you're a VC firm and you get a startup, you invest in them and you give them all this money and you want big market share. You want to be, get to a billion dollar valuation, right? Like that's kind of the game we're playing. Why is their media mix so darn backwards? And here's what I mean by that. Why is everything about customer acquisition, not market share, Despite them saying in their vision they want market share, yet their whole entire business model is 90% direct response, 10% brand building. Yet, so they're like, their actual capital funding of their vision is completely disconnected from said vision. And no one in the world is calling any VC firm on it or SaaS startup on it. And it makes no sense. I spend over a million dollars of my own money a year on research and development. I can guarantee you brand building is more impactful than direct response for market share. And so around those lines, why is that not translating? Oh, yeah, I, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I couldn't agree more. I think, to your point, brand is so important. I think that they go hand in hand, too, brand and demand. And the tough part that I think we try to just educate and help our portfolio companies or you know, just founders and CEOs understand is that the reality is that sometimes a brand is not measurable, you know, and you, you got to kind of take the chances on 
the things that are unmeasurable because those are the things in the long term that actually pay off. You know, they're the things that pay compounding dividends where, you know, yeah, Google, let's be Facebook, honest though, for one second here, Drew, like what percent of your, so you got a client in a portfolio, what percent actually spend 50% of their budget on brand? Um, I would even say, more than 10%. Like, do we have anybody who spends more than 10%? Like, cause I mean, I've got over a hundred of these accounts and a lot of them like are in your portfolio. Like I've seen them, you know what I mean? So I'm like, what's the gap? Cause I get what you're saying, but why does it not translate? Like I never see it. Like I'm talking publicly traded across the board. Like I'm talking, I've got, they give me a million bucks and they give me like 25 K for brand. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think the way maybe you're thinking about how people are spending on brand might be different too. Like I would say like the spend is a lot more in brand on headcount and kind of like the experiential side of things, you know? And, and that's where like I try to lean in a lot more too is that like the the quicker you can hire like I'm a huge fan of you know if you look at our team we have seven full-time designers uh, at a venture capital firm uh, with an employee base of 40 people you know and um, you know we are definitely like a design-led organization and I look at a lot of you know task companies and they might have a product or UI designer but there's not a brand designer in sight or, you know, they outsource a lot of it. And that's like one thing, just like a small kind of very tactical thing, but looking at companies and saying, you know, how do you think about design with a capital D and kind of intentionality? And it's things like that that kind of then trickle down into like, you know, what, what, I guess what I'm saying is brand awareness. So I get what you're saying. You're saying branding and positioning, customer experience, things like that. What I'm saying is brand awareness. So let me give you a perfect example. Cause I really want you to, I really do want to see what you think of this because it's, really going on. So like I did everything for Sentinel one for like four years pre-IPO three, four years. I can't, it was like forever. I'm talking like we went through more head, like different point of contacts in Sentinel one than I thought is imaginable. Right. And we get the whole time though. They want to beat CrowdStrike. Okay. You ever fly into SF? Yes. Yep. Do you ever see CrowdStrike all over the airport, everywhere you look and it's been a while since I've been yeah. to uh, SFO, but uh, yes, the like brand awareness and billboards along the 101 in, in SFO. Oh yeah, you can you can tell who is thinking about it and spending money on it for sure. Now the hard part is though, right? Is that so? Then you go to these organizations, they say they want to beat CrowdStrike, and then you pitch a big connected TV campaign, you pitch a big brand campaign, you pitch that stuff. And then the immediate question is, well, how many customers are we going to get? And we both know you're not going to get a bunch of customers from a CTV directly. You're going to get them indirectly. They're going to come through direct. They're going to end up on your pipeline, but it's going to be over an extended period of time. And it's not going to be evaluated on an LTV CAC ratio, like your Google ads, your G2, your Captera, your software advice, and the rest of your campaigns. So is there anything you can think of as a VC firm from your perspective and as a marketer that you know, we could communicate as directive or that your portfolio companies could so that we get to the way maybe where we're 50% direct response and 50% brand awareness. Cause I would love to see that advertising mix, but I would say I literally can never, ever get that approved. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, this is good. I, I'm, I'm kind of tracking what you're saying more now. I think yeah. it, it, you're right. It is incredibly difficult. I think a lot of times um, it stems a lot from, I would say like the CEO too, you know what I mean? So like there, there's, my guess is most of the time when you're kind of pitching to the CMO or the marketing head, they're like, 
hell yeah. You know, I want to do a lot more of this. This is the fun stuff. You know, th this is, this, this is what I got into marketing. And I think it is, it's a lot of like, how do they better manage up and kind of educate up to the CEO who usually to your point is not a marketer. Uh, they might be more technical and a lot of like the only things that they kind of think about oftentimes are the ROI and kind of the dollar signs and like, Hey, show me more, of, more of this. And I think, you know, we, um, uh, I had the pleasure I got to, when I started my career, I worked at exact target and got to work for our CMO, Tim cop, who is now this, the CEO over at terminus. And, um, yep. something that he kind of always said, and that I loved, was just like the, when you, for a lot of marketers, I think their default is often to kind of focus on the demand gen side, which I think, which I think is not wrong as well. But when you hit the numbers on the demand gen side, then it gives you the, the freedom to do all of like the fun stuff on the other side, like the brand building campaigns and the, you know, the employer brand campaigns and, and on that sort of things. And I think, you know, his biggest thing over the years has always been how am I kind of educating up to my CEO who's now at, at exact target was the, is now the high alpha managing partner, Scott, who is, who is not, you know, a traditionally trained marketer, but has a very keen kind of marketing mind. But, you know, he was always yeah. about how do I kind of educate up to Scott? Like, know what's important and why it's important and um you look even now too at like how the terminus organization and kind of marketing function runs and the the freedom and the trust that he has in like the marketing organization to run big brand billboard campaigns and you know out of home stuff and things that they're never going to pay back you know roi on a ltv to cac like uh tracking perspective but i think yeah. it's um it's it's some of that kind of how are you educating up into your CEO and kind of getting them on board. I think there's no magic bullet, but I think personally, I just look yeah. for, you know, if I were to take a new, a new role at, you know, a high growth SaaS company, that'd be the first thing I'd be looking for is, you know, what importance is the, where does marketing report up to? Do they report up to the CEO or to like someone else, a chief sales officer, or, you know, I think that says a lot yeah. about the company and the importance they place on marketing and kind of how does the marketing function interact with and what kind of trust and uh importance does the ceo kind of place on it and um i think more yeah. organizations from that point i don't think there's a silver bullet but that is i think a good challenge and i think a lot of companies should be thinking more that way because those are the companies that um are winning yes and especially like in the in the long game you know it's yeah. not kind of just that short game of uh are we hitting the numbers this quarter but how are you building a brand that's going to last um, for the long yeah. term? It is sour and sass, Drew. Now, are you ready? Oh, yes. Yep. All right. I'm, I'm going, going with here. the watermelon warhead to start things off. Oh, yeah. That's brutal. Now, I think the reason I asked you that question was because I think I know the actual reason why it doesn't work. And I think it might be your fault. And so, and when I say your fault, I mean the VC, because I think there's a lot of CEOs that actually believe in my vision for taking market share and spending, but they get their butt kicked by the board. So how does a board work with VC? Because I think they're the, the silent assassin of marketing, right? You didn't bring them up, but I get enough exposure across over hundred plus SaaS companies. They're all pretty big, right? These aren't the little guys. These are all mid-market enterprise players. And the silent killer of all great marketing, in my opinion, is the board. 
All right, you got to go in front of the board once a quarter and tell them what you did with the budget they gave you. And the billboard ain't going to show up. It's going to be a big line item, and there's not going to be any ROI from it. So you're going to get your butt kicked by the board, and you're going to get fired. So you don't approve anything that's brand building. You all do direct response. But because your whole budget's going to direct response, you have diminishing marginal returns on every campaign, and performance is constantly getting worse. And the only solution is hire an agency, try another tactic. It's not take a longer-term approach on returns and diversify the media mix so you have better brand exposure, which leads to retargeting, which then lowers your direct response CAC, which then gets you increasing marginal returns, which is the model we follow at Directive, right? And this whole methodology we call customer generation, right? Delivering on the promise demand Jen forgot about. And so when you think about that, why does the, like, what's the VC company's role, the board and the CEO? What's that translation? Because I actually do think the money is the reason why companies aren't bigger. Ironically, despite the companies who are like the money wanting the company to be bigger. Like, I think there's this ironic disconnect between the money from the company and the vision. Yeah, I, I do think the board is where the accountability comes up on like the spend for sure. But I do think it's kind of funny though. I think you, I don't know. I don't know if it's just people are afraid that that's what they think the board is always going to think too. But like, you'd be surprised at like the things that like, man, if you, if you pulled off a really awesome out of home campaign and like, Hey, check out how, you know, how we're portraying the company and things like that. Uh, and throw that up on a few slides in like the board meeting, like you'd be surprised at how many board members are like, wow, that is awesome. You know? And it, what I think it's, it is, it's this balance of like showcasing how the company, you know, showcasing what, what you're doing with the company to make it kind of uh, look much bigger than you are and kind of more yeah. established and the, you know, the effectiveness of the brand. And I think it, I think the onus too is on the marketing team, you know, being a marketer and also kind of seeing from the, on the venture side of things, you know, on educating them on why it's important. And I think that a lot of people just don't go through the effort to try to do that because it is easier to just to come back with the waterfall metrics of here's how much we spent and here's how much came out the other end. And, you know, if we hit the number or not for the quarter, and I think they just kind of take the easy route rather than kind of fighting for how do I educate the board members that, yeah, for the most part, none of them, marketers or you know they they are can be more finance backgrounds or legal backgrounds or they're just you know venture investors i think too it can be oftentimes hard to find which is why i think high alpha has been really lucky um it can be really hard to find investors and board members that have what i would call like an operator's background and um they are investors at heart and from you know that's kind of their their main role and i think where high alpha plays a unique role in the ecosystem is that everybody on the team is an operator uh, by trade, but then also still today in our day jobs, you know, I'm still working with all of our companies on the studio side, helping name the company and brand the company, build their first website, write their first marketing website, copy and headlines. And, you know, I'm, I'm still in it day to day and the same with kind of our four partners. And so all four of them were CEOs at one point, they've all founded multiple companies so I think uh, find your my my advice would be to find yourself a board member, an advisor, who 
is an operator at heart. You know, they, yep. uh, they aren't just in it for the financial return and aren't just kind of a, uh, career investor, but are, you know, truly an operator and they're going to have a different viewpoint on it. And I think you'll be able to convince them of that without kind of as many of the hard, hard numbers. I love but that, I, you know, I, think- I say all of that yeah. knowing that it's, it's difficult. So. Yeah. Cause I mean, or else we'd see it more often. Right. And it's ironic yeah. that the ones that are doing the best are the ones doing it yet. Other people can't. And so it's like this weird thing I found now let's talk about your number one strategy. Right. So, um, you got a new startup, a part of the high alpha portfolio, and you have $500,000 break down for me how you spend 500 K on a new startup in your mind. Yeah. That's uh, a great question. Specifically, are you thinking I have 500K to spend on marketing, sales, go yeah, to market, or 500K yeah, in the business? 500, as well? Nah, just marketing. So you have 500K yeah, exactly. for marketing, and you have to spend it over um, first half of the year. You have six months, 500K, and that's your kind of foundational period before they're expecting you to move into a quarterly model with you know OKRs and returns. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think back to like the brand side of things in the early days you have a very small window to make kind of good, big first impressions. And so I put a lot of money. I am a big fan of like just forcing functions. So with all of our new companies, I like to do like a bigger launch event or uh, campaign around like the company launch itself. And so in my put quite a bit of it, 50K toward like launch campaign of the company. I think, uh, Yes, launching a brand new startup that pretty much has no customers and no product yet is not newsworthy. But I think if you make a big deal out of it, then other people will think it's a big deal. You know, so that's where like I always kind of encourage people that this is something that you can kind of say is newsworthy. So put a lot of money toward kind of a big launch campaign. Uh, get in front of your customers and the people you want to be your customers, like in person. Um, you know, nowadays events are coming back. We're doing a little more field dinners and events and marketing events. But I think, especially in enterprise SaaS, uh, the events being in person with people is incredibly important. And um, I would say a lot of our, back in the, the pre-COVID days, 40 plus percent, 40-50% sometimes of like a marketing budget would go toward events and conferences and field marketing. Um, and and I, yeah, I would kind of probably put the same amount there. And kind of probably split the rest. It depends on the business and are we a self-service sign-up business or like enterprise software in terms of where I put the money on the advertising spend side of things. But I like to put a lot into brand SEO and uh, hiring an agency early on and starting to kind of uh, put a lot of work into content. How do we build a content machine or content strategy that is going to be differentiated? Um one of the things that's really content. Let's talk about content there, Drew, just for a millisecond. And I want to hear maybe you got a different perspective because I know you did great stuff at Lessonly. But I think there's some companies like Lessonly that are made for it. You got an LMS, bro. It's like content's made for it, right? And there's others that are hard, right? And so what I mean by that is, okay, so I started Directive. I ranked as number one for SEO agency. I'm all in on content. I obviously do two of these live shows a week. I think we have some pretty differentiated, pretty awesome content here simultaneously this is not what pays the bills like this content does not drive revenue and it's not easy for me to fund right so i am 
a capital allocator at heart. And what I mean by that is like, I look at something and I say, could I put another hundred K into it? Could I put a million into it? Could I put 500 K into it? Like, does it have that kind of reach? And one of my issues with content is if I put 500 K into content, I'm very codependent on discovery and it very content's very hard to monetize when you have a high AOV. And what I mean by that is, when you see when you serve a specific persona, your content can resonate, but then you have you need to have pricing that creates easy access. So, like a perfect example in SaaS, ProfitWell, very niche market where they can have very focused content. But the part no one says around why ProfitWell strategy works is because they have a free product. So there's a connection between their content strategy and activation that you can get in a lesson lead, that you can get in a ProfitWell that you can't get with 130K average order value and an enterprise sales process, let's say like a workday, right? So how does workday monetize content? So in like your mind, do you think content works for everyone in the same sense? Or do you think there, we have to create more like defined use cases for content for SaaS? And this is coming from a guy who sells SEO and content for SaaS, but just being actually real about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think the strategy is definitely different, but I think at the end of the day, the content content in some way too is also it's, it's a brand play and so that's where i think is how are you th- how are you thinking about the 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 goal it's outside through the lens of acquisition and you're saying content more generically right yeah and you know and i think it's about building a brand it's about being known for something and like when i think about the enterprise side of things like it's it's much more about that side of things and what and what worked really well i mean we we did this we ran this playbook phenomenally well at exact target and it was out hard content. That is like the two things I always pointed back to what made our content really valuable and what made it successful was like, are we creating something that is unique to us as a business? So like, IE, this is not the, like how to build a social media marketing strategy ebook that you can get at every single one of our other competitors and their mom, you know, but it's something like, uh, benchmarks based on the 7 billion emails that we send every month, you know, and it's like something that really only our business is able to kind of give. And then what's something that's inherently valuable. Um, so unique to your business and then inherently valuable. So when you think about a lot of these, the research reports we did at exactly was like the one thing that kind of really shown in this area, but it was, how do you create something that actually helps them at their job? You know, because the end of the day, I, I tell people this too often. It's like I can't remember who originally said it. Like you're selling promotions. You know what I mean? Like why is somebody going to buy your software? It's because they want a promotion. They don't. You know, it, it's how are you making them look good? And so, kind of, if you think about what is in our content. What can we create? What kind of value can we provide to people at the end of the day that helps them get closer to that? And so, to to keep on the example uh, at Exact Target we would do these benchmarking reports and these state of marketing reports that I think they're now on like the eighth year still running. And, wow. you know, one of the biggest things was we'd have, uh, you know, competitors using this even of like specifically spend data, everybody would print this thing off and bring it to their boss and be yeah. like, Hey, look, this is how much, you know, people are spending 50% of their budget on X, Y, Z. Why am I it's only getting, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, who do you think they're going to come to when they go to buy a new email service provider? Like it's, it's, you're right. It's not the direct response kind of stuff, but it's just how do you be helpful and like useful to your audience? And, and that's when, again, back to the, like the, the do things that don't 
scale, to do things that don't, you can't measure. Like those are the things that at the end of the day, like truly make your brand great, you know, versus just yeah. barely making it. Um, so th that's what I think about. Be, like, yeah. Um, it's like that jobs to be done methodology, right? Like what jobs does my ideal customer have to get done? And then how can my content help them get those jobs done? Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, I think to, to your point, when there's more, when there's a free product in a direct response way to like generate content, especially on, uh, on the SEO side of how do, how are we getting traffic in to people that care about this very specific product and routing them in the right way to the sign up flow, making sure that they're getting value out of it immediately. I think that that is a different motion and also highly valuable. Um, but I just kind of think of those as your, your demand content, if you will, and your kind of brand content and, um, I, you know, even sometimes with our organizations kind of think of them as two different people, even to be responsible for that, um, and how they're kind of thinking about it. I love that. Now we have one last sour candy. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going for the toxic waste. Do it. Oh, yeah. The second one so much worse. So my final question for you is more of a future casting question that I'm actually curious. I think you have a lot more insight than I get access to. Do you think free trials will be more prevalent or less prevalent in 2023? That's a great question. Thanks, man. I'm on a roll. This is good. I love the feedback. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of OpenView Venture Partners based out in Boston um, you know, they have built an entire brand around product-led growth and Blake Bartlett over there is, uh, is incredibly, uh, smart in this topic. And I think, I do think that we're seeing it moving that way. A lot of the data on studies that they show is just the efficiency that happens kind of, especially after you hit like a certain turning point, like to go from these businesses that are product-led growth free trial kind of self-service models to go from zero to say to the first million takes, you know, I, I can't remember the data, but it takes twice as long as yep. an enterprise SaaS business. It's requested demo kind of flow, but to go from that, like it's once you get into the higher scaling side of things, so go from 10 million to a hundred million, it takes like three times faster if you're a PLG business and just the, and more right. efficient. And so that's where like, I think, I think because of that, you're going to see more and more companies go in that route. I think it's going to continue to grow. Will it become the norm? I don't know. I, uh, so I'm seeing I less of it, big on right? it. I think my note is I'm seeing less trial actually than I used to and more hesitancy because I think frankly, people's products aren't as good as they act for being really honest. It's 10 times and harder. You have to be, your product has to be that much better, right? Because you have to essentially, you don't have an AE to objection handle and explain and do this whole thing, right? And then you have these other people that are doing this concierge onboarding, right? The superhumans, the mighties, that, that other approach. I, I think that is like, so that's like being CS led, right? You have CS led, you have kind of this product led, and then you have this sales led. I think they all have their things, right? Like you said, product-led is great when it comes to your CAC because 
you have such a low initial acquisition cost, then you focus on activation more than acquisition. And so you get economies of scale down funnel, right? Conversely, on the demo side, it's like you have to focus on that initial cost per demo, which is a little bit of acquisition and a little bit of intro call to AE balancing. I'm just curious, I guess, if we look towards tomorrow, if we think trials are going to be more often. I, I feel like, and part of me wants to say yes, but part of me is like a skeptic because I know products will still suck. You know what I mean? Like it's that like, like many of the products I see today with our clients, they have a great product, but they don't, it's still so, we still live in this very custom software world where a lot of the CTOs and the engineers come from this custom software background instead of like scaled software. Does that make sense? And I think that's why this product like growth doesn't apply. Some, a lot of people's, product is still built on this like we'll customize it to you type thing does that make sense mm-hmm. it's still very manual i think yeah going that route it is the harder route you know what i mean because then you have to actually build an amazing product and that sells itself which is much harder than in my opinion selling a product you know what i mean um and and i think at the end of the day you're never going to be able to completely rule out people um because if you're completely self-service too, like a customer is never going to maximize the amount of money that they want to spend with you. You know what I mean? On their own. They're never going to think of, they're never going to come into a relationship with you and be like, how can I spend the most amount of money with this company? The first thing they look at is what's the cheapest plan that gets me to what I can do. And they don't think about, well, oh, but if I could use it for this other thing, you know, the consultative sell. So I think, yeah. you know, that's, and that's where Slack and even Calendly, you know, all these businesses at some point, they still introduce some version of a sales rep and whether that's to your point, like a customer support person, but it yeah. takes a human consultative discussion to kind of maximize the, the account value of like a prospect yeah. or a, an existing customer. And so I think that even if companies start in that route, especially as they scale, they will need to add people to the equation. It can't be all product led all the time. Um, like a hybrid. At least, at least to build an efficient FBC, right? It's like four plans, one, two, three contact for enterprise, right? And that's that like, but I think it's that after that trial, because like Gong is a perfect example, right? Someone comes in for Gong, but the real value of Gong is if you get all the CS reps on Gong. It's not if you get all the SDRs, right? And so it's like, but they aren't very good at that. Like we upsold ourselves, Gong didn't upsell us because the product was so good. But how many people's products as good as Gong, for being honest, right? And so I think that's that like caveat of this hybrid thing I think we're both talking about. But Drew... It's been amazing. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, you thanks so much for having me. You liked it more than anyone. Oh, I <laughs> so, love sour candy. So this was good. It was fun. This was awesome, man. Well, thanks for being here. This was a great conversation. And uh, that's sour and sass, everybody. Thanks.